Excuse me. I'm just going to chug this cold hot toddy. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Hello, and welcome to Jesuitical, a podcast brought to you by the phenomenally young, fairly hip, and technically lay editors of America Media. That lay part means we aren't Jesuits, but we work with them. Join us each week for a smart Catholic take on faith, culture, and the news, often over drinks. I'm Ashley McKinless, and I'm joined by Olga Segura. Hey, guys. And Zach Davis. Is there a reason we didn't say often over brews? Because that would be just... Yeah. It rhymes. I know. All right. Okay, so I guess there was a reason. I'm sure that's not the first time I've thought that. terrible idea, Zach. (laughs) Speaking of brews... We are drinking today. <laughs> it's uh, not a brew, it's not is a it? Brew, no, <laughs> but today we're drinking hot toddies because it's the doldrums. Today's the last day of January. And oh, thank God! We're about to end the second worst month of the year and <laughs> roll into the worst month of the year when it's cold and we have nothing to look forward to, except Valentine's Day. And yeah. and, and, and February struck back with a holiday of its own yeah. to supersede. Well, also, guys, I'm excited to be officially drinking next, starting tomorrow. So I'm looking forward okay. to Yes, we will be very happy to get to include you in yeah. our toasts. Yes, um, so. But until then, me and Zach I'll just have the toddy. I'll just, is, it, is it just a toddy without the alcohol? Or is, nope. No, no, no. Okay, coffee, sorry. Coffee is not a toddy. <laughs> I was just going to pretend that it's a toddy. But anyways. Uh, who are we talking to this week, Olga? Today we're talking with Jordan Zanari Duffner. She's an associate at the Bridge Initiative, where she studies Muslim-Christian relationships and Islamophobia. Um, and she is the author of Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. So we're going to be talking to her about her book and the work she does. Also, we're giving away two of her books if you leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. So listeners. It's a great book. And yeah. so if you've been holding out, you're like, man, I'm really lazy. I don't mm-hmm. want to do it because mm-hmm. it is really easy to do. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now's your time. Yeah. So if you want a copy of Jordan's book, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and send us an email to let us know that you actually left us a review. Yes. At Jesuitical at AmericanMedia.org. Thank you. I forgot what our email was. (laughs) It's a difficult one. But before we get to that, Mm -hmm. we have... What do we have? Signs of the Times. Oh, yeah. I thought you had a surprise for me. No surprises. (laughs) Yes, it is time for Signs of the Times, the part of our show where we sift through the Catholic news of the week so you don't have to. What's our first story, Zach? So we're recording on Wednesday, which means it is the day after the State of the Union address by President Trump, which was Tuesday night. Uh, Did you guys watch? I did. I did not. It got in the way of my Game of Thrones catching up. Oh which boy, is very upsetting! It was a, an hour and twenty minutes. Yeah, wow. it didn't start until nine. The average length is like like an hour. We're bringing this up on Jesuitical because uh, an undocumented medical student from Loyola Stritch School of Medicine in Chicago, this mm-hmm. alma mater, uh, Cesar Montelongo, was Senator Dick Durbin's guest to the State of the Union. You know, there's a trend of um, people who are attending the State of the Union. They get guests to mm-hmm. use their guests to sort of make political statements. Mm-hmm. And this young man is a dreamer. Um, so part of Trump's speech was talking about the dreamers and the DACA deal. But he also made he talked about other dreamers in a kind of, uh, you know, divisive way, I would say. Yeah, he made that comment like Americans are dreamers, too, which mm-hmm. is so othering. Like, I'm going to acknowledge your existence, that you're a dreamer, but mm-hmm. also you are not part of this group, mm-hmm. which is Americans, even though, you know, these people like Cesar are very much American. Um, right. And that was something that Senator Durbin was hoping to accomplish. He wanted to remind President Trump that these dreamers are people who want to give more to this country. They've been here and they are not just people who have no skills like he's been 
he's in med school and he's contributing to society and wants to contribute to a society that he's also a part of. Yes. And this isn't the only news out of Chicago Mm -hmm. um, regarding dreamers and sticking up for DACA. Uh, recipients. Um, Father Gary Graff, who is a uh, priest in the Pilsen neighborhood of Chicago at St. Procopius, um, is going on a hunger strike in support of local dreamers. Mm-hmm. Um, and so God willing, Father Graff is not going to eat anything except for water and protein powder mm-hmm. um, until the March 5th deadline. That's when the Congress has to pass something before they become deportable. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's interesting in the sense that he's using uh, fasting is a is a sort of political protest, which um, has a long tradition in the Catholic Church, right? Yeah, it does. It was it was you know it's a pretty contemporary thing. It's not something we see like in the Middle Ages, more like nineteenth century onward. But most famously, um, uh, during the Troubles in Ireland, it was a uh, a tactic used by members of the IRA against the British crown. So hunger striking is not exactly uncontroversial in the Catholic Church, especially if you go into it intending to not eat until you potentially die. That that could be considered, you know, intentionally taking your life, which Mm -hmm. is seen as a grave sin. Um, So Father Grath said, I'm I'm not an advocate of intentional suicide. I'm not going to let this take my life away or bring me to the point where I literally end up hospitalized. So he's not going for that. Mm -hmm. But then that kind of takes... Does that take the teeth out of? Yeah, I don't. I don't think strike? so. Yeah, I don't think so. Either. I mean, no one has a good existence on mm-hmm. protein powder and water, right? Yeah. Right. So you're being willing to um, offer up your suffering because that's I would mm-hmm. say it's definitely suffering mm-hmm. um, for a cause um, is a very mystical Catholic idea. Mm-hmm. Um, it also, but it also has political dimensions, mm-hmm. which is sort of the church and the world the, really colliding. The Catholic both and. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Totally. Okay. What's next, Olga? So this is just a quick update to our SOT from last week where we discuss Pope Francis's latest handling of sexual abuse allegations. In, and these are coming out of Chile. He's actually going to be sending Archbishop Charles Secluna to listen to victims and kind of investigate all of these allegations that are coming out of Chile. This is a pretty big deal because this archbishop was the chief prosecutor at the height of the sexual abuse crisis breaking in the United States. And he's very well known and very well respected among victims. So this is pretty this is seen as a pretty positive step from Pope Francis. So if you didn't hear last week, Pope Francis came under a lot of fire for defending this uh, bishop Mm -hmm. in Chile who victims have accused of covering up the crimes of this notorious priest abuser. Um, So it sounds like he's taken that criticism Mm -hmm. to heart and is taking pretty decisive action. Um, Mm -hmm. So we'll see what happens. So what's next, Ashley? Happier news. A couple in Uxbridge, Massachusetts, Edward and Lena Gowan, um, renewed their wedding vows after 70 years of marriage. Um, When they first got married, he was Catholic, she was a Congregationalist, and they couldn't get married in the church. I'm a little confused. So this was pre-Vatican II, um, Mm -hmm. and I don't know exactly. Who knows what happened (laughs) in the church before that? (laughs) Yeah, Um, but but they got married in a church rectory. Okay. So I think they they had a a sacramental wedding, Mm -hmm. but it wasn't in the church. And as we also discussed last week, people like getting married in churches. Mm-hmm. So, right. 
<laughs> um, whether it's or they like having an official Catholic wedding, whether right. it's on an airplane or in your childhood church, um, which is what they did. Uh, Mr. Gowan is 90. Mrs. Gowan is 89. Aww. And they That's beautiful. had all of their children and grandchildren and mm-hmm. great grandchildren. And the family wow. organized it for them, <laughs> yeah. right? Um, so they had their wedding ceremony mm-hmm. and they were asked, you know, some advice about how you have a good marriage after mm-hmm. 70 years. Um, and Mr. what do they know? <laughs> yeah. It's he only said, 70 years. Mr. Gowan said, I don't go out the door without giving her a kiss. Very good advice. Um, they don't fight about religion because, you know, they're both Christians, but right. he's Catholic. They're she's congreg- congregationalist. And uh, she often jokes that sometimes she just doesn't wear her hearing aid. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes, great wisdom from our elders. What's next, Zach? So our next story comes from Canada, where the severed arm of St. Francis Xavier is oh making its way oh across boy. Canada. Oh God. So is this Love like a relics. tour? Um, <laughs> a relic tour? It, it is. It, and it actually started uh, towards the end of last year. Um, so the arm of Saint, for, right forearm of St. Francis Xavier, which uh, is... You know, the arm he used to bless, to baptize lots of people with. This is mm-hmm. why it's sort of venerated. Um, it's seen better days, certainly, <laughs> if you look up a I, picture of it. I thought it, it, like, hadn't deteriorated at all. It's <laughs> I a know. miracle. Sometimes we're like, Catholics are like, oh, look at the saint's body. It's incorruptible. And you're like, Whoa. My arm is like that. <laughs> it's like, he should have seen a doctor way sooner. That's probably what killed him. Um, no, but it, it doesn't look like it's 500 years old also. Um, but it is making its way through Canada and it actually has its own seat on Air Can- <laughs> on, Air- on Air Canada flights. Oh, wow. <laughs> um, and there's this person, uh, Angela Rainier, who's been um, tasked with traveling with it and she's been given a special duffel bag to carry the arm in that's got a lot of padding and protection. Oh, um, wow. And, and she said, it's like doing a road trip with a friend. Do you think it smells? <laughs> no, I think it's got a like encased thing that... Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Um, <laughs> it's weird. It's super weird. No, but also appropriate because I've heard St. Francis Xavier been called the first global saint because his whole thing was like he was one of St. Ignatius Loyola's first companions. And like as soon as he was in the Jesuits, he was out traveling in India trying to go to China. So yeah. he might not have made it to China, but if only now he he's in have. Canada. <laughs> now he's in Canada flying maybe first class. Don't know. <laughs> All right. What's our next story? Going to Ireland now, where a, across the world, <laughs> where a Catholic priest is warning that there has been an exponential increase in demonic activity, and Whoa. he's calling on the bishop to provide more exorcists or priests who are trained mm-hmm. exorcists. Um, so he said, in recent years, he's he's a trained exorcist, and okay. he's been getting a lot of requests from people um, worried about demonic possession. So is and there a reason for the rise in demonic activity or? Unclear. Um, I'm guessing it's social media because that's uh, That explains it. That explains <laughs> it. Social or millennials. So- yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but I, you know, I just thought it's been a while since we've talked about the demons. Um, that so is a good Zach, point. I just wanted to get your <laughs> yes. reactions to this. <laughs> well, I mean, it makes sense. I mean, sometimes you might think like, wow, I wonder if the news is extra negative. Then it, it, you know, nope. There are actual literal demons going around mm-hmm. the world, and mm-hmm. maybe things are getting worse. Yeah, and um, actually, that this is not just one Irish priest. The International Association of Exorcists, there is a thing, four hundred Catholic leaders, and they have seen a recent, a dramatic increase in demonic activity in recent years. So, so it's not just Ireland. Yeah, yikes! But just uh, 
pray to Mama Mary. I Pope Francis <laughs> recently said that demons don't come in if mm-hmm. she's in the house. So say a couple of Hail Marys. Today via Skype is Jordan Denary Duffner. She studies Muslim-Christian relations and Islamophobia and is the author of Finding Jesus Among Muslims, How Loving Islam Makes Me a Better Catholic. Welcome to Jesuitical, Jordan. Thank you, guys. So based on the research, what do Catholics think they know about Islam and what are they getting wrong? Well, Catholics know some basic things about Muslims that they pray often and that they, that they fast, but they're less familiar with a lot of the things that Catholics and Muslims share in terms of theology and religious figures and things like that. A lot of Catholics don't know that figures like Mary and Jesus are really important in the Islamic tradition. Um, they're, as I mentioned, they they're familiar with fasting and, and prayer, but they don't realize that, you know, giving to the poor and uh, those sorts of more social justice oriented things are are also really important to Muslims. And do Catholics know in general? Do do they know other Muslims in their own personal lives? Well, one of the things that, that I was surprised to find in some of the research that, that I did with the Bridge Initiative on Catholics' uh, views of Muslims and their relationships with Muslims is that Catholics were actually less likely than the general American public to know somebody who is Muslim personally. And that really, that really surprised me because, you know, Catholics are really diverse. We um, were all over the country, and I would have thought that we would be like the rest of Americans. And have uh, a similar level of familiarity, but only about three in 10 Catholics uh, know someone who is Muslim personally. And that kind of surprised me. And when did you start? uh, When did you first meet someone who was Muslim? And what were those first uh, interactions like? Well, the first Muslim that I knew well was a a student at my Jesuit high school um, in Indianapolis, where I went. And his name was Nader. And I, I talk about him a lot in the book, actually. And he was, you know, an ordinary high school student like myself. He was also a fellow Hoosier, so we were both really into basketball, and um, and so that was a, you know, a commonality. But I was really struck by his dedication to serving the poor, and um, he he really wanted to be a, a medical doctor and uh, serve people in that way. And he's he's now actually in in med school, which is really cool, um, and making that that dream come true. And can you talk a little bit more about um, the misconceptions that that Americans have about about Muslims? Yeah, well, I think we we all are very aware that there's the stereotype of Muslims being violent or Islam uh, promoting violence. One of the the common tropes that comes up too is that our religions or our religious communities are pitted against each other, but um, these things don't really mesh with reality once you actually get to know people and see see Islam and see Muslims behind the headlines. A lot of people asked me when when I came back from the Middle East, like, oh, were you as a Christian welcome there or did you feel uncomfortable there? And I felt so uh, embraced uh, there and that my Christianity was embraced and that just my my life as a religious person was uh, valued, and I was able to to strengthen in my and grow and be, be strengthened in my faith when I was there. One of the things I'm constantly in awe of is the dedication to prayer that my Muslim friends have. I, I encountered that in college when I lived in a living learning community for Muslim students uh, on campus uh, at Georgetown, 
And my roommate would get up early in the morning and, you know, stop throughout her day to, to pray. And I thought, man, that's dedication. I, I want to be like that. I, I wish I had that. And so that's one of the ways that, that I've been enriched in my relationship, um, uh, with God. And what have you learned, um, in your own personal and professional experience about, uh, what does it mean to be an ally, um, to Muslim people and, you know, combating some of these stereotypes and, um, standing with them in Islamophobic structures and situations? When we encounter problematic comments or prejudicial comments that people make in, in our communities, we need to approach them about those things. Obviously we can do that in, in a kind way, but I think we owe it to our Muslim brothers and sisters to stand up for them in our own communities. Uh, particularly if we're in a, a Catholic or a religious context. When I was in high school, I received an email from a very close family friend. And it was one of those chain emails that's hateful that people oh send boy. around. It, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And um, it, was, it was an anti-Muslim message. And it was sent by a very close family friend of ours. And it... <laughs> it really struck me. It was, uh, it really troubled me. I thought, you know, this is someone who is really close to me, uh, who, you know, sees her faith as a source of goodness, uh, in the world. And, and yet she's sending this around to other people in our Catholic community. And she's effectively equating with, with the, what the message was equating all Muslims with, with terrorists. Mm -hmm. And you know, I didn't know, I didn't know a lot of Muslims at the time. I knew this, this kid nodder from school, but it really just didn't sit well with me. And I was talking to my parents about it. And my, my mom took me by the shoulders and she said, you know, Jordan, that's why you have to write. It's, mm -hmm. it's this sort of thing that you need to, to help address in our community. And it was really a vocational moment for me. And it's, it's ultimately the reason why I wrote this book. It's the reason why I do what I do. I, I've been, I've had such positive experiences myself in the Muslim community, and I, I want my fellow Catholics to, to be able to move past some of the, the prejudice and the misconceptions that they have. Well, yeah. I think that's something a lot of people can relate to, whether that's like a chain email or a mm -hmm. Facebook post. Yeah. Or, or having to like have uncomfortable conversations with family and friends about politics in this day and age, too. Yeah. But your, so your advice, difficult. so your mm -hmm. advice to people who might also share that experience is write a, write a book. <laughs> no, uh, you don't have to do that, but, but there, there's, there's things that each of us can do. And, and like you were saying, it's about having those, um, those sometimes more difficult conversations with people. And, but I think we can do it in a way that's, that's charitable and faith filled. And one of the things that, that I, I, I would say to, to Catholics who, who want to do more in this regard is we have so much, so many resources, you know, from our Catholic tradition that can inspire us and that we can utilize in this work of combating Islamophobia, whether it's Nostra Aetate, which is the Vatican II document um, that talks about the church's relationship to other religions. Um, so obviously uh, I, actually with that one, I actually thought that was mostly about Judaism, but it's not solely about Judaism, right? Right, right. So it the one of the initial documents or an earlier version of the document was was going to solely be focused on Judaism, but they ended up opening it up and writing about different religious traditions, oh. uh, including including Islam. There's an entire paragraph on Muslims and the things that Muslims share with Catholics and the things that we should praise uh, as Catholics about 
Muslims in their religion. And the first line of that is the Catholic Church holds Muslims in high regard. And I, I just wish more Catholics knew, knew that, that our default attitude towards Muslims is one of esteem and admiration and respect um, and an acknowledgement of all the similarities that, that we have. I think so. I think that that's obviously true. But like you said, a lot of Catholics might not have read uh, that document and might right. not know Muslims and might be um, worried about entering into dialogue because they are afraid mm. of saying the wrong thing or causing offense. Um, so what what kind of like like road rules for interfaith dialogue would you lay out for people if they if they want to get involved in this? Yeah. Well, first of all, I would say that dialogue isn't only about sitting down and having a formal conversation about religion with people. And that's one of the cool things about what the church has has taught about dialogue is that there's all these different forms of dialogue. And one of those forms is the dialogue of life, which is more informal. It's when we're living side by side with people and sharing our joys and sorrows. So the first thing I would say to a lot of Catholics who might be skeptical is you might also you might already be dialoguing and not even realize it. So mm-hmm. so that's the first thing. You know, as Pope Francis says, whenever we approach another with with openness and love, I'm paraphrasing, but with with openness and love and a and a desire to learn about the other, that's dialogue. Yeah. Uh, obviously, willing to share of ourselves as well, but also to receive from them. Yeah, and and in your in your book, you you make the distinction between dialogue and proclamation, or what other yeah. people might call evangelization. So. Right. Generally speaking, would you say you go into dialogue not really trying to change each other's mind? Yes. Or and converting I, and, someone? Is that right, unhelpful? Right. It's the worst way to hang out with someone, actually. <laughs> yeah. God. I know better than you, and I'm here to tell you why. <laughs> I want to be friends with that person. But so is, is there room for both? Well, in the, in the church's mission, broadly, there is room for both. Um, you know, evangelization, broadly understood, um, incorporates both dialogue and proclamation. I, I do think, though, that there is a type of conversion that does happen in dialogue, and that's that might not necessarily mean anyone's changing their their religious, you know, affiliation. But we're hopefully always being called to be to turn towards God, to be converted towards God, and by one another. Is there is there a danger in kind of uh, in this you know admiral desire for unity? Um, and relationship of flattening out differences too much um, in a way that doesn't really respect either tradition. Um, Sounds like you think the answer is yes, Ashley. <laughs> no, so I, I don't, I, you know, I, I think it's important to be able to, like, hold these disagreements and differences, you know, even as we enter a relationship, but it, it, that seems like a hard thing to do. Mm-hmm. You know, of course, Christians have the Trinity and and Muslims don't. Obviously, that's that's an obvious difference. But that doesn't necessarily mean that um, that the values that we have are are different. I think it is important to explain other religions on their own terms or allow other religious yeah. communities to explain mm-hmm. their religious traditions on their own terms. For example, one of our most beloved saints is St. Francis of Assisi. And a lot of people don't know that. Careful. This is a Jesuit podcast. (laughs) I know. I know. I know. I still love Ignatius. Um, St. Francis as well. He, a lot of people don't know that he, during the Crusades, uh, actually spent a number of days with the Muslim, the Muslim Sultan in Egypt. And it's not really clear what 
uh, everything that happened in that encounter. But it was it was an experience of dialogue that did shape St. Francis's um, life and his the way he lived out his Franciscan charism. And there's some Franciscan scholars who have who will argue that the the reason why certain things were recommended for the Franciscans uh, were were shaped by Francis's encounter with um, huh. Islam and Muslims, which is really cool. There's there's wow. a book by Paul Moses called um, The Saint and the Sultan that I would highly recommend that talks about this. There's a few uh, documentaries out about this right now too. Hmm. Uh, so it's a really interesting story about uh, St. Francis. And yeah, so I think there's so many things that we can call upon within our Catholic faith um, that that are reminders that this is, this is not something new and this is something that we're all called to. Yeah. So speaking of saints, um, our <laughs> last question, you might you might see this coming. Um, if you could canonize one person, living or dead, Catholic or Muslim or <laughs> any other faith, uh, who would it be and why? So I initially thought that I was going to canonize uh, Father Christian de Charget, who was a, a French monk who lived in Algeria in the 90s. And for me, he is a, a real example of what it means to be a Catholic in dialogue um, with Muslims. And I, I write about, about him a lot in my book. But I found out recently that he is actually already on the path. He's on the he, way. <laughs> yes. He's already, he and his brother monks are already on the, the path to canonization. <laughs> so I'm actually going to canonize uh, Father Christian's friend, Muhammad. And it's, it's a long story, but uh, there was a situation in which Muhammad uh, ended up saving Christian's life and in the process losing his own life. And this was a really pivotal and moving moment in Father Christian's life and in, in his vocation. And he he writes about how, you know, in the Eucharist, he realized that it wasn't only, you know, Jesus whose, whose sacrifice was present there, but also that of his friend, Muhammad. And so... Father Christian was was convinced that that Muhammad was in heaven, that he was a saint. And as I write in the book, I, I think the communion of saints is full of Muslims, and so uh, Muhammad is just one of those people. All right, that's great. Okay, thank you so much for joining us, Jordan. Um, and where can people find your book? They can find it uh, through Liturgical Press uh, or on Amazon. Uh, and there's a, I also have a little website associated with the book as well, which is just findingjesusamongmuslims.com. And listeners, we are going to be giving away two of these books uh, if you leave us a review on iTunes. We should say that's courtesy of Jordan. So thank you. I will happily send them along to you if you review Jesuitical, which is a great show. <laughs> oh, thanks. <laughs> you have to say I'm that an now. Listener. <laughs> oh, thank oh, you. You've listened to every episode. Oh, oh we wow. love hearing that. Ashley hasn't even listened to every I episode. <laughs> That is true. <laughs> oh my goodness. Jordan, right. thank you so much. Thank you so much. Thank you guys. Take care. Yeah, right. Bye. You too. Bye. Now it's time for some listener feedback. So last episode, we asked you um, what you thought about Pope Francis's handling of sex abuse in the church. And we got um, really thoughtful responses. One from Stephanie Carlton, who um, talked about she she found she was on her way out of the Catholic Church. Mm -hmm. And then Pope Francis was elected and, she, you know, he brought her back in. Um, and she's really dismayed by how he's handled this. Mm -hmm. um, 
So hopefully the update we gave this week gives her some mm-hmm. hope that he's going to uh, learn from his mistakes. And Jesuit brother Dan from Canada wrote in and saying in the context of, you know, he's really thankful for everything that Pope Francis has done. Um, he feels like he's done a lot of good for the church and um, opening it up to um, people who are normally have sort of not considered the faith before. Um, but all that considered, he was embarrassed and hurt by his comments. Um, but also try, he's struggling to deal with, you know, recognizing the Pope is human like yeah. all of mm-hmm. us. And so trying to hold that intention with the admiration that he has is I think something we can all relate to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Agreed. Um, and exciting news guys, we've got the two winners. Um, last week we were giving away two spots to Bobby Carly's Ignatian yoga retreat. That's happening this weekend. And the winners are Justin true and his wife, Rachel Marie. So congrats guys. Oh, yeah. congrats. Mm-hmm. Have a very relaxing mm-hmm. and Ignatian. spiritually enriching. Yes. And yeah. Yeah. Stretchy retreat. <laughs> <laughs> um, and just a reminder to our listeners that if they want to be entered to possibly win our next book giveaway, um, they got to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and email us to let us know that they left a review. And you can win a copy of Jordan's book, Finding Jesus Among Muslims. All right. Now it's time for Consolations and Desolations, the part of our show where we talk about where we found God this week and where it was harder to find God. Olga, what do you have? I've got a desolation this week. Um, So my boyfriend and I have started these premarital counseling classes at our parish. Um, (laughs) (laughs) Can I freak out for a second? You can. Like a big deal. You can. You can totally freak out. But yes, Ashley, (laughs) sorry to drop this on you. It's my favorite thing. We have started these premarital classes uh, because we're talking about getting engaged this year. Um, So we went to our first one this past Sunday and I went in with a really open mind and I was super excited about this. Um, And the couple who does it, they've been married for, I think, 10, 15 years. Um, And we sit down and we're like 10 minutes in and then it gets really problematic. She starts telling me, you know, women are the weaker sex, um, direct quote, um, and that a lot of the issues that exist in society, it's because women are striving for too much and like men just have to be the leaders and we have to follow. Um, And that was just really... um, just extremely desolating for me because this is a community that I've been a part of for almost a year. Um, And Enoch and I have established ourselves there. We were building this community together and just kind of being met with this bad theology has sort of made me question whether or not I still want to be a part of this. And it's just really kind of turning me away from these people who have helped me grow spiritually. Um, I really enjoyed this congregation and just, it's just really disheartening to let this one class push me away from God in this in this space that I've created that we've created, you know? Yeah. Yikes. Yeah, I know. It's it's rough. Um but I was like at least I got a desolation for this week. So <laughs> silver lining. Oh my god. I, there's like yeah, I don't know. There's this weird gamifying that's happening to our spiritual lives, I feel like, oh, I where know. something mm-hmm. bad happens to us, or and then we're like, oh, sweet, check that button. No, what I'm going to talk about note. this week on the show. My consolation this week is that I have a desolation to bring to Eric. <laughs> okay. Um, but no, really, I have a desolation. <laughs> okay. Um, so uh, I did watch the State of the Union last night, um, and the part that really struck me was that uh, President Trump used these two parents whose daughters had been murdered by um, members of MS-13 to, you know, score political points. And, you know, Trump has said a lot of terrible things, but this struck me really 
in a new way because I had recently lost a loved one to murder and the idea of using that pain and and the fear you know I know the fear and pain that comes Mm -hmm. with that and to see it used in that way for a political agenda was um, really really desolating what do you have Zach? So I have a consolation this week. Uh, one of the things I had to do at work this week was go through America's archives looking for a Lenten article that we're going to put in our print issue. And it sort of struck me, one, because Lent is around the corner. Um, but as I was looking through these things, I realized that like Lent's coming up and it filled me with the sense of excitement or anticipation that I'm going to re-examine my relationship to God in this new way. So something is coming and change is going to come with that and it's going to be good or bad or I don't know. Um, but sort of feeling like I'm going to be re-engaged in a new way in my prayer life has been really consoling this week. Not that it's happened yeah. yet, but I guess maybe <laughs> it sort of has. Yeah. Um, give me, give me a prayer life, but not yet. <laughs> yeah. Or it's the start of something new. Oh God. Okay. Do you really just choose this consolation so you can For sing that high purpose. school musical? <laughs> No comment. <laughs> All right. Um, on that note. On that note. Jesuitical is brought to you by America Media and produced by Eloise Blondieu. Our editor is Noah Levinson. Jesuit formation provided by Eric Sundrup, SJ. Engineering by Angelo Jesus Conta. Adverbs provided by friend of the show, Robert Christian. Our logo is by Sean Tripoli. You can follow us on Twitter at Jesuitical Show. And please leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and you can win a book by our guest, Jordan Denary Duffner. And shout out this week to Claire Bear ND, who did leave us a review. So thank you, Claire Bear. And send us your questions, feedback, cocktail recipes, and tell us where you found God this week at Jesuitical. <laughs> At Jesuitical at americamedia.org for America Media. <laughs> Almost there. Finish. Finish. I'm Ashley McKinless with Olga Segura and Zach Davis. We will see you next week. Ah! <laughs> 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 <laughs>